Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind to Shadow Citizen. And welcome to episode eight with a uh, for a second visit with our guest James Perloff. Uh, we are broadcast live, and you can chat along with us at mixlr.com slash forward shadow citizen. We are simulcast at radioconfluence.com, and from there you can take us with you on TuneIn and Xeno Live. And also, please check out our website, shadowcitizen.online, where you can find our upcoming guests and our archives. And now we have merchandise, so go get those coffee cups and uh, T-shirts. Anyway, my name is Rob Osell, and my co-host is Rachel L. McIntosh. And today I'm once again extremely happy that James Perloff is our guest. Um, he was with us, what was that, two weeks ago? Well, how many weeks ago was it? Three, four? How many? Well, this is more than that. Yeah, this is episode be, uh, eight. This is the eighth show. It must be two months. Yeah, well, a long time ago. But we, we hit, hit it off so hard talking with you that we had to have you back. You are like a cornucopia of knowledge, historical knowledge, so we can put in context what's going on currently. And James Perloff is a dear friend of mine. Not like that we hang out all the time, but we talk regularly. I'm so pleased that he's decided to be with us on the show because he is so smart. He's written the book Shadows of Power. This book has sold over 100,000 copies. And it's the seminal book on the Council on Foreign Relations and how that group got together and now basically runs our government through like the shadows of power. And so James Perloff is here today to talk to us. And I'm so excited. James, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, well, you guys are having a great show. I really enjoyed your uh, last gig uh, last week with Castro and Austin Fist. Oh yeah, that was out of control. That was she was great. That was that was one of the best things ever in my life. That was great. And uh, your last, you know, your last visit was ep- episode two, or you know, our, our our second episode. And you put so much information down. And today, I think it's just going to be an extension of that because, uh, you know, like your recent blog post here about the Ides of March, uh, you know, all of this stuff is kind of coming to a confluence right now. So, but I, you know, you had some uh, historical context that I I think kind of you know you can kind of give us a walk into this if you'd like to get into some of that sure uh i just put this post up yesterday uh on uh uh, being prepared for for march the 15th there is a uh a convergence of events that day and it's not to be an alarmist but i what i said in the post was i think it's at least prudent to be aware of them and what first caught my attention was uh david stockman who was the director the budget director under ronald reagan and uh, i'm just going to give you a quote that he says, he says, quote, I think what most people are missing is this date, March 15th, 2017. That's the date that this debt ceiling holiday that Obama and Boehner put together right before the last election in October of 2015, that holiday expires. The debt ceiling will freeze at 20 trillion. It will then be law. It will be a hard stop. The Treasury will have roughly 200 billion in cash. We're burning cash at 75 billion a month. By summer, they'll be out of cash. 
this will be the mother of all debt ceiling crises. Everything will grind to a halt. I think we'll have a government shutdown. There will not be Obamacare repeal and replace. There'll be no tax cut. There'll be no infrastructure stimulus. This will be just one giant fiscal bloodbath over a debt ceiling that has to be increased, but no one wants to vote for, unquote, David Stockman. That's the first of a number of events, but um, it uh, it caught my attention with a few things I'd noted historically and some things I'd heard from people who were contacting me on my website. Well, just- I, li- I, li- I like how our, the press has not brought this up once. Right. And, I mean, and, they were going nuts over the sequestering of the military. Every That was like the world was going to end. Remember that? It was like, what was it, a couple years ago when that happened? Uh, and everybody's like, oh, my God, they're shutting down the government. Nobody's talking about this right now, and it's only, what, a week away? Well, Correct. they put these barricades up in front of all the national monuments and, like, okay. I mean, even out here, I think even you couldn't even uh, stop alongside the highway to look at uh, Mount Rushmore because they said, no, it's closed down, and so, nope, move <laughs> along. <laughs> kind of going, Are you kidding me? But uh, the thing that I think is amazing is we've got the refinance king as president, you know, at, you know when this all comes to, to pass. So I don't know. Uh, to me, that seems like quite a big deal, but other people aren't, like you say, they aren't focusing on it at all. But No, and I, I, they're more focused on the social issues. They really are. They're uh, on the immigration ban, the, you know, the travel ban type of stuff, the women's march and um, the strike that's going on today. They're very focused on that sort of stuff. It's easier to keep people emotionally evolved because they understand that. They don't seem to even. It, it's this this uh, financial stuff is blazing over people, and that's really what tears like nations apart is when the money just isn't there. And so many on the right hand side, you know, have been you know trying to get rid of the Department of Education and all this stuff. You know, there's a bunch of departments that people say should really be handled at the state level, but uh, you know they've got these federal offices, and it, and apparently this is. You know, one of the areas that uh, Trump is going to go after. But we have a guest here. So, James, what do you want to talk about? Well, Rachel was talking about the focus being on the social issues. I think there will be a confluence if we run into a government shutdown, which is what Stockman's talking about. Now, typically, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the Democrats will vote in favor of a debt ceiling increase. I would not be surprised if some of those... Democrats suddenly turn into budget-minded people. Yeah, because, they will, because they don't like Trump. Yep. Because a government shutdown could be blamed easily by the media on Donald Trump, and they would say it's his intransigence that's causing all these um, social services to be shut down. Actually, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up the, um, the government shutdown of 2013, they list all the agencies. Quite a few were shut down or partially shut down. Some stayed open, you know, obviously they don't shut down air traffic control, your most vital services. The post office was independent because they're self-funding. But if there was a lot of uh, people not getting their benefits, it would tend to ramp up those anti-Trump protesters. And maybe that's one reason they're being quiet this time, guys, is they want this to hit the public by surprise. And I did see a clip, and I don't know where he was or what you know what he who he was talking to, but he says, "Yeah, and all you people who are on welfare and food stamps, you're gonna love working again. It's great." You know, and mm-hmm. I wish I could yeah. pull that out because, yeah, I mean, if uh, if as uh, oh, I forget Munchkin or whatever his name is, I'm sorry, uh, if if he's. <laughs> 
if he's right, you probably it's probably an anagram for Munchkin. <laughs> yeah. If he's right, and you're uh, talking about the Goldman Sachs Secretary of the Treasury, correct? Steve Mnuchin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's, okay. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> but if he's right, and and we hit the uh, you know the debt ceiling, and then all of a sudden the president, it's part of his presidential powers, has the uh, you know has the ability to allocate spending. Uh, Stockman kind of laid it out. You know, the government does have a uh, you know great deal of money coming in every day, or I mean every month. And so, if the president can allocate where those funds go, he might say, "Okay, let's turn off you know those EBD cards or uh, and, and various other programs." So, it's yeah, that would get people out on the street in a hurry. Yeah, I, yes, I don't think anybody else. wants. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants the EBT cards shut off. Um, if those things get shut off, you know somebody really wants to see upheaval. And that's what uh, Soros, of course, has been planning. Um, there's something else that Stockman noted that's uh, worth mentioning for sure, and that is that the next Federal Open Market Committee meeting is on March the 15th. Also, what a coincidence. And here's what Stockman says. He says, quote, they're going to raise interest rates on March 15th. They have to. I'm talking about the Fed, uh, unquote. Now, he could be wrong about them raising interest rates. However, uh, Bloomberg says there's a 90% chance they will, and I heard Greg Hunter saying that the pundits on Wall Street are are, are pretty universally predicting that. Yeah. Now, as you know, raising interest rates uh, tends to cause in, uh, economic turmoil. It tends to pressure the stock market down because uh, you know CDs, uh, which are worthless anyway, but they start to look a little more attractive. And um, people who have mortgage rates with variable rate loans their interest rates start to go up, your credit card rates start mm -hmm, to go mm -hmm, up, and right. people start to suffer financially as well. So if you put together a, a government shutdown with people's benefits being shut, with financial turmoil in the markets from an interest rate increase, and by the way, I just want to mention that Janet Yellen and her predecessors did not raise interest rates a single time during the Obama administration, but in December, which is uh, Trump's first month in office, they increased them for the first time in nearly a decade. That tells you that this is politically motivated. They're not motivated by the economy. Is which, eh, which I don't know point. if that's true because um, the interest rates should be higher. They really should be. Having yes. a zero, you can, how, can, how can people that are trying to save money, you know, like Catherine Austin Fitz said, people should be making a habit of saving once you know, once a week, put some money away. I'm thinking to myself, where under my bed? I'm not going to put it in the bank. Why? There's no the interest rates don't do anything. You know, every time I, right. every time the, I've gone the, uh, out and seen one of the uh, you know like the Congress uh, people's you know town hall or whatever you know the the stops at a at a grocery store or something, the retired people are always going up and asking them you know how come the interest rates are so low? You know, I'm not getting anything on my savings. I've worked my whole life and. Uh, you know, it's just disappearing because prices are going up, but the money isn't keeping up with it. So uh, it's going yeah. gonna to hurt the, uh, the, you know, I mean, the housing market will just dry up if they raise rates, you know, too much. You know, I went through that all, you know, in the, under the Volcker administration. Of course, those mm -hmm, times mm -hmm, the interest mm -hmm. rates were insanely high. But but anyway, <laughs> I'll shut up yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but I think that the uh, interest rates should be higher than they are now. I think that it's not helpful for people that are retired. It's not helpful for people that are trying to save some sort of money. And it's quite frankly, not helpful for any of the pension funds. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they're, you know, how, but 
like you say, for the very bottom of the pyramid financially, it stings when they raise the interest rates, especially when they then they raise the interest rates on variable rate things like credit cards and mortgages. Now you're really you're you're screwed. The, the other right, thing, Rachel, and just to clarify, I uh, didn't mean that there weren't economic motives for lowering and raising the rates. Uh, they've played an inside game with the stock market for years. Right, the Fed right. knows when the stock market's going to go up and down, and that means that the friends of the the board of governors at the uh, stock market, like David Rockefeller, know in advance when the stock market will go up and down. But they, of you, course, you just, so they can plan accordingly, of course, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah. plan their portfolios accordingly. Right. But they do use it for political motives, uh, too. Just as an example, uh, when they wanted to get uh, the GATT treaty passed, this is what got us into the World Trade Organization, which sent our, our trade deficit skyrocketing. The Congress was waffling. And uh, what happened was uh, Wall Street didn't like that. And so uh, actually it was um, was a Greenspan then it raised. Yes, it was Greenspan raised interest rates 0.75 percent, which is a whopping increase and sent them the market spiraling downward uh, for four straight days. And then finally, Bob Dole, uh, who was the leader of the um, the uh, Republicans in the Senate, uh, raced over to the White House and stood next to Bill Clinton and vowed that Congress would have bipartisan support for the GATT Treaty, and then the markets rebounded. So there are definitely, they definitely use it for political motives as a carrot mm-hmm. and stick, but there are economic, economic uh, perks as well for, the, for yeah. the elite. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. One other thing I remember from the uh, the Minneapolis Fed president, you know, he said something that kind of took me by surprise. I'd never heard of it, but he said low interest rate cause high home prices. Yes. And, yes, it's true. Yeah, uh, and I can believe it. Yeah, because look at how much. Uh, I mean, you know, prices are at least six times higher. You know, uh, than when I started. You know, back in the seventies. So I mean, mm-hmm. and then people have this feeling they have. Oh, I have all this equity in my house, and then they. That's when people start refinancing, and that's when it's all over. Well, I have this kind of feeling that that's, you know, when uh, Bush Sr. lost the election to, you know, Bill Clinton saying it's the economy, stupid. When the second, you know, when the younger Bush came in, they said, well, how do we get reelected? And, you know, because the economy's not doing real well. Well, if we just drop the interest rates down to zero, you know, that'll get uh, people out buying houses. And if you go out and buy a house, you're going to buy you know, new furniture, new appliances, and all this other stuff that goes along with it. So, that was kind of the way to keep the economy going was by having the low interest rates. So, mm-hmm. yeah, George Bush Senior, George H. W. Bush, uh, largely lost that election because he broke his promise of no new taxes, and it seems his son picked up on that and uh, did not raise taxes even to finance the Iraq War. Instead, they just used quantitative easing and had the FUD, FUD, FUD the Fed create the <laughs> money out of nothing, and uh, to uh, send a. Uh, uh, inflation skyrocketing, but without raising taxes, which is what the public perceives as uh, uh, most detrimental to them and what they will blame the government for. Right. Isn't that funny? It is true. People automatically assume that the taxes are bad, which you know, mostly mostly they are, but they don't even think twice about inflation, which is a secret tax. Mm-hmm. They don't see it. And that that's, that that's actually what drove me to the Ron Paul campaign, because when I became a, a delegate for Ron Paul, an alternate alternate delegate, I was elected. 
I got all involved in that because of his mon way he looked at money and how he's looking at the money money in America. And it it blew my mind how messed up the economy was. As I mean, honestly, if we're this messed up, the rest of the world must be really messed up because we're we're at the top of the pyramid here on the world as far as money goes, but we're falling off right now. Well, the other thing that people, you know, it's it's tax time. People are thinking about it. And the thing that people forget is when Ronald Reagan, you know, had the Grace Commission, they discovered that, you know, 50% of every tax dollar that you pay uh, goes to just service the debt. You know, and, right. and I think it's much higher now. I th I've heard estimates as high as 75%. And what the corporations pay in taxes is basically what funds the military. And uh, and then everything that we want to for all of these social programs or you know, repair of infrastructure, you borrow for all that stuff. So that's those are some pretty. If people realize that, they'd start to go, well, what is this whole uh, Federal Reserve thing that people were talking about and the Fed? So, well, the other thing too is that when Catherine Austin Fitz was on last time, and I love her as everyone knows, I love her so much. Um, when she said. I asked, where is Trump going to get all this money when he gave his speech to Congress? And she started talking about, well, you make investments and it's compared to what the payoff is, what you get back. And I, I didn't really get a full understanding about where is the money going to come from to pay for the wall, wall, to pay for these F-35s, which is the hugest contract in military history of the world of anything. Um, how, how, where is the money going to come from? And is this when Trump is going to just start line iteming the different things in our government that are he's just going to get rid of, like some sort of dictator because he has the power, because we're going to get ourselves in such a situation that that's what is admissible? I, I didn't understand what was going to go on there. Well, I yeah, I, I, I don't know either. I've got one uh, question from the room here. I don't know if we're switching uh, subjects here at all. Jim, are you still with us, James? I'm still here, sure. Uh, okay. And have you had a chance to kind of digest this latest uh, Julian Assange uh, WikiLeaks dump, the this Vault 7 or anything? Or, you know, is it too early to really comment? I've only, on? I've only glanced at it uh, on Twitter. I haven't uh, delved into it, no. But was there something specific he was talking about in the uh, just in the, any, uh, chat room? any comments? I guess in general, and I, and I would say yeah, it's pretty early because what? How, how big? It was a pretty big uh, dump. <laughs> it was ginormous, ginormous. Um, but the things that I saw about that and looked like stuff that I had seen before, and all people back at the time were like, "Oh, you're crazy, kind of tinfoil hat wearing person about how your television spies on you." how your car could actually get blown up remotely because you have OnStar on it, things like that. How your iPhone, they were talking about the different, um, what do you call it, the different hacks that the CIA does in corporate land because they were involved in the programming or whatever, and they're able to slip in and do their business that way. 
I think uh, Jack Blood had a post in Facebook, and he said, yeah, this uh, latest vault <laughs> dump basically confirms everything that we've been saying all along and what you just mentioned there, that the TVs spy on you. And by the way, yeah. <laughs> the two big screen TVs that I delivered, they were both Samsung TVs, which are the culprit. And so is my uh, my little flip phone here that's got a camera on it. It's also a Samsung. So is, mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. all the Samsung stuff spying on us, or does it pertain to all the other... Uh, <laughs> Well, other. remember when um, that the bill came out that everybody had to switch to digital TV? Remember that? Oh, uh, absolutely. And they were giving okay. out little vouchers yeah. to buy your converter boxes. So that's that you right. Have... That's right. And so my mother, being the good citizen that she is, she went and she got the, the box from the cable company. And then she hooked it into the TV and it didn't work. So she went and bought a new TV. And that, oh, okay, great. So now we've got this all hooked up. Well, first she had the box that the cable company sent her. Now, every time the kids, I, my kids were very small at the time. They're still wearing diapers. Um, we would go over to visit, helped her hook up this box, and the kids would start crying. And all of a sudden the TV would turn on. Like, what the heck just happened? So we'd shut the TV off. And this went on more than once, like on different visits. And finally, my mother said, oh, she called the cable company and found out. They said, well, I don't know what the heck's going on, but that's when you have to buy a new TV. So she went and bought a new TV, one of the flat screen digital things. And it's all high tech. And she was all hooked up. TV didn't turn on when the kids started crying anymore. So we got the problem solved. But what the heck, man? So now she had to buy. She bought a, a Samsung. So wasn't that one of the other things in the hack is that even though the little light, you know, that's supposed to come on to say that they're recording you, you know, they can they can be recording you without the light going off. So they, yeah. you won't even know that you're rec- being recorded. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, this all kind of plays into the whole Julian Assange thing that, you know, the NSA is basically tracking every email, every phone call, everything that you do electronically. You know, if it's connected to the net, they have a, a file on you someplace, you know. Yeah. The, that's but, pretty much it. And yeah, everybody should know that by now. You should know it. But yet people still walk around with their iPhones, which has GPS in it, and exactly tracking where they are. Oh, I went to this restaurant. I mean, everybody seems very well adapted to it. Um, but I know, now I sound like an old crotchety person, but I know about 15 years ago, this was very disturbing, even the concept of it. Now people are like, whatever, I got my, my new iPhone, my iPhone, what are we on now, seven, eight? They're all excited. Well, and doesn't this just kind of play into the whole Trump Tower thing? Oh, the Obamas was bugging the, the Trump Tower. Uh, you know, and before that, it was the Russians that are, you know, helping Trump and all that. But, I mean, if they're if they're spying on everybody, what difference does it make if they're, you know, of course they're, you know, uh, spying on the Trump Tower? And Well, that's the thing. I think everybody's pretty acclimated to this idea. And doesn't this all just kind of tie in back to the, you know, the Watergate? The, the campaigns are always trying to spy on each other, however and wherever they can. I don't. Do you have any perspective on that, uh, James? And historicals. Going well, uh, intelligence has always been uh, the key to winning any battle, whether it was military or political. Um, and to be sure, all these technological advances. And uh, yeah, one of the WikiLink dumps that just happened was that the Samsung smart TVs are or listening devices, but that really shouldn't surprise anybody at this point. And um, you guys were talking about the digital upgrade. 
Uh, I recall when that happened, the U.S. government offered $40 certificates to help people upgrade. And I said, since when did uh, digital TV become a constitutional right? It's obvious this is all about advancing the 1984 surveillance state. But you know what, guys? I think we've drifted here. We kind of started out talking about March the 15th. And we've sort of gone off the, that track. And I, <laughs> yes, I we sure to, did. We sure did. Let's bring it yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I wanted to go, go back. And it, it does tie into all of this, ultimately, of course. But um, we're talking about the uh, the FOMC meeting and the the uh, scheduled uh, uh, deadline on the uh, debt ceiling, which is, they're both scheduled for March the 15th. And what I wanted to tie in here was that... Robert David Steele, the CAA case officer, who seems to be a pretty good whistleblower on what the deep state is doing. He's talked about, he said that every false flag has either been provoked by the intelligence services of the United States or created by them. And uh, he's been talking about uh, Soros quite a bit and uh, the spring riots. And I found something uh, online. There's uh, quite a social media campaign to deluge the White House with mail on March the 15th. And so I'm just going to quote what the official site for that says. It says, quote, we will show the man, the media, and the politicians how vast our numbers are. And we'll bury the White House post office in pink slips, all informing the president that he's fired. Each of us, every protester from every march, each Congress calling citizen, every boycotter, volunteer, donor, and petition signer will write a single postcard and put them all in the mail on the same day, March the 15th, 2017, unquote. So you put it together, if you've got a fiscal shutdown, people can't get benefits. If you've got interest rates being raised, creating economic turmoil, isn't that going to ramp up the protesters who are already ramped up by the deluge of anti-Trump headlines that the mass media, mainstream media is putting out every day? Now, according to Robert David Steele, shortly after this, you're going to have, he says they're just waiting for the weather to warm up. And uh, he says that there's going to be a very violent American spring and uh, it's going to culminate on May Day. Uh, I I heard that one myself. Yeah, May Day. Day. Uh, By the way, I myself hitchhiked with a friend on May Day 1971. We went down for the May Day protest against the Vietnam War 46 years ago now. Um, So that is a significant day. It's, uh, It's the date. Uh, the communists always celebrated, but uh, many believe it actually celebrates the founding of the Illuminati on May the 1st, 1776. But anyway, to quote... Wait, wait, wait. what do you mean? But anyway, the founding of the Illuminati. Hold on, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, that's just a minor point, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, I know, no, but they were, okay, they, okay. It said that Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati on May the 1st, 1776, and that's the true significance of May Day. Oh, interesting. That, that's something I, I heard more than 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, so continue on with what you're talking about. I, I, was, okay, so I was just curious. Robert. I was just curious that, you know, that the, the name of the website where they're doing all this is IdesOfTrump.com. So that, that I thought tied right. right into it. Ties it in. Thank you. That was excellent. Go ahead. Go ahead, James Perloff. So, Go ahead. Uh, what is this former CIA case officer, Robert David Steele, who's been getting uh, more attention in all media recently, He says, quote, George Soros is leading a massively funded effort to put a mix of paid and uninformed protesters into the streets beginning around 20 March. Tens of thousands across the country augmented by agitators dressed in black and causing property damage, as well as mercenaries who will shoot police officers dead and strive to blame it on Black Lives Matter. This will culminate in a massive 
three million person march on Washington. He's talking about May Day now. They will trash the city and seek to drive Donald Trump for the office if he cannot be successfully impeached, unquote. So you can see all this coming together, couldn't you? Um, a government shutdown, which, by the way, would limit the government's ability to deal with riots if they didn't have the, the uh, funding to keep their services going. Um, with the uh, increase in interest rates, with uh, the Soros rioters uh, just waiting for the weather to get warm. And, you know, they've been wanting to impeach Trump. They, they started out they, with uh, not my president riots. And then they went through the Jill Stein recounts. That didn't work. Then they tried threatening the electors and that didn't work. And then they, Obama came out with a Russian hacking claim and that didn't work. So now that he's in office, they uh, have turned to the idea of impeaching him. And, uh, you know, a bloodbath in the streets would be a great way uh, for the uh, media and for the Democrats and for the establishment Republicans to start calling for his resignation. Well, well, isn't it interesting, too, how all of the, you know, the local law enforcement agencies, you know, the sheriffs and the police departments are now getting all of this military surplus. And like during the Boston bombing thing, we saw all of those uh, people in black uniforms, you know, 7000 troops on the street. So it's like they've been amping up and preparing for this for a long, long time. They just needed the right uh, person in office. And I, I noticed also in your blog post, you mentioned all of the, the anniversaries, you know, 50th uh, uh, year anniversary, 100th, you know, 300, 500 year anniversary. So it's all kind of culminating on this year, isn't it? Yes, uh, 2017 does mark uh, several hundred anniversaries, including the Balfour Declaration, you know, which created the State of Israel, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the U.S. entering World War One, the Schofield Reference Bibles publication, you know, that was the book that birthed Christian Zionism. It's the 50th anniversary of the uh, takeover of Jerusalem by the Zionists. 50th anniversary of the attack on the USS Liberty. It's the 300th anniversary of the first Freemasonic Grand Lodge and the 500th anniversary of the Catholic-Protestant split. So that's a lot. But those not necessarily relating to March the 15th. But, um, uh, but still, the, get back to the Illuminati like their numbers, and it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. that, that, they all, that we have all these anniversaries in this year. So I, I find that interesting. Just to tie in history to the idea of what Steele was saying about um, you know, these, it wouldn't be Dynecore necessarily, but these Dynecore, these private mercenary types who we've seen at these false flag events. He says they would be shooting police officers and elsewhere he says they would be shooting people in the crowds, you know, to ramp up race riots. Uh, and just to tie this historically, this is an old trick. Uh, when, before the Tsar abdicated, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, there was a artificially created bread shortage in St. Petersburg, uh, 1917, the capital of uh, Russia at that time. And uh, there were machine gunners in hidden places which opened up in the crowd. This was blamed on the Tsar's police, which it was not them doing it, but it ultimately led to the Tsar abdicating. And if you go up to the um, downfall of the Shah in Iran in 1979, there was a march in Tehran where there were people on the roofs who shot at the police, mm -hmm, and the police shot mm -hmm. back. And then the people on the roofs started firing on the crowd. Now, when it was all said and done, there were about more than 100 people in the crowd who died and more than 70 police and soldiers who died, but it was all blamed on the Shah. He then cautioned the military not to use force anymore, which emboldened the rioters and led to his downfall. And I can see them using the same trick uh, with a uh, gigantic protest taking place in in Washington, where they would shoot at both 
people in the crowd and shoot at the police, ramp up both the Trump supporters who want, you know, greater police action and ramp up his opponents uh, who want him to step down and blame it all on Trump. It's been used before, and I believe they might well use it again if Robert David Steele is correct in his analysis. By the way, I know we're we're, we're uh, getting into your tie color report time. Here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, but what you just said, history always repeats itself. People mm -hmm. that um, go into government and go into basically uh, controlling other people's lives for the greater good of the whole thing, they study this stuff. They study mm -hmm. how to do this. This is why they always attack, um, have attacks in the middle of the night with full moons because there's more light. And that's been historically when they do it. Um, then these little things, like you just said, they're, they're going to create shortages of bread. They'll create shortages of money. They'll mm -hmm. do that because it always works. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah and, 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 and why is it that it's just out here in the in this alternate media uh, that we find out that they, they do use agent provocateurs that... Uh, that Soros mm -hmm. does hire, you know, uh, you know, rioters and uh, gives them full medical and dental insurance. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, like crazy people talking about it. This is true. You can get, you can't get health insurance otherwise. So why don't you go throw some rocks? And, uh, you get some health insurance. And but, then the point um, that yeah, you brought up. Yeah, we should do the tie color report whenever you're ready to start the music, Rob. Just one more thing too. And the one, okay, sure. And the one thing that you did br bring up is that you know the the snipers are shooting people in the crowd and shooting uh, the. Police officers, so they are shooting both sides, trying to get this crossfire going between the crowd and the police. And uh, yeah, anyway, here's uh, here's our intro music for Rachel's been absent for a couple of uh, you know weeks here because it's just been too busy. So here we go. Shadow Citizen presents the Necktie Color Report, and now for this week's interpretation of the subliminal messaging in Necktie Color, as shown in this week's photos distributed by the mainstream media. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Shadow Citizen Tie Color Report. This is my weekly rundown of current events and how they are presented to the public via the powerful messaging system of men's neckties. I'm actually covering a few weeks' worth today because we blew through my report we were so engrossed with our guests, attorney Kurt Haskell, the survivor of the underwear bomb plot that prompted full body scanners to be issued to all the airports in the United States. It's a fascinating episode, and if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend you go over to our archives at shadowcitizen.online and listen to it. And lastly, last week we were totally engaged with former assistant housing secretary Catherine Austin Fitz. And I didn't get to do my full overview. So I'll try to make up for lost time because this is important. Right now, I'll focus on President Trump's address to Congress, which was what I was going to talk about last week. That's where blue was the color du jour. Blue, as we should all know by now, physiologically causes the body to calm down, which was a great choice considering the level of angst and anxiety the whole planet was having in anticipation of this speech. Remember that ties are slashes of color intentionally introduced into the frame to help reinforce the messaging. In this case, the president was wearing a very dark navy, almost black, showing the seriousness of the occasion. But of course, it would have been inappropriate to wear a black tie to report on the state of the nation 
too funerary and men in black looking. So they had him in a dark blue, which is associated with generals or the military, and it had horizontal white stripes. The horizontal stripes were first seen worn by President Trump during his address to the FBI at the end of February, when he basically gave them a very thinly veiled warning that he was aware of a quote-unquote third pillar, which means he knew that somebody was spying or someone intentionally was trying to sabotage the efforts of the United States within the organization, and that he intended to destroy it. The white horizontal stripes represented communication and intelligence, but also static. And visually, they do get your eye moving up and down. That oscillating, that oscillation of your eye also kind of relaxes you. Anyhow, with the presidential address, which was, as far as speeches go, it was superb technically, very well written. He wore this very dark blue. Let me read from the Lucher cut color test by Dr. Max Lucher, which is basically a pop paperback version of a very in-depth psychological test that spans responses to literally thousands of colors and color combinations. And here's what it says about that dark blue. The dark blue of the test represents complete calm. Contemplation of this color has a pacifying effect on the central nervous system. Blood pressure, pulse, and respiration rate are all reduced, while self-protective mechanisms work to recharge the organism. The body adjusts itself to relaxation and recuperation so that in sickness and in exhaustion, the need for this color increases. Psychologically, the tendency to be sensitive and easily hurt also increases. Dark blue, like all four of the basic colors, is a chromatic representation of a basic biological need. Physiologically, tranquility, and psychologically, contentment. Contentment being peace plus gratification. Anyone in this situation is balanced, harmonious, and tension-free as this feels settled, united, and secure. Thus, blue represents the bonds one draws around himself, unification, and the sense of belonging. Blue is loyalty, as they say, but where one's allies are concerned, one is especially vulnerable. So blue corresponds to depth of feeling. Blue as, as a relaxed sensitivity is a prerequisite for em empathy, for aesthetic appreciation, and for meditative awareness. So right there in black and white and the Lucia color test, that's what blue is all about, that dark, dark blue. During his speech, the president was literally and figuratively framed by two lighter blue ties. I'll say that again. He was framed by blue. As I've mentioned before, blue is traditionally the color of the Democrats. It is also the national color of Israel. On display, almost like the matting on a framed piece of art, the president was surrounded by light blue, one of which more closely corresponded to the Israeli flag, and the other was more of a baby blanket blue. So as he read his speech from the teleprompter, only straying once very briefly, good for him, he spoke about very costly initiatives that would help make America great again, that would make people nervous, typically. So the blue was an excellent choice across the board. This week, the president was spotted wearing the exact same tie while signing the second version of the travel slash Muslim ban. The first one he signed on January 27th 
and it was an ambitious disaster. This one, well, it's basically the same thing, but it's done all it can do to judge-proof the new executive order. I guess the tie worked so great last week, he figured he'd do it again. Next week, I'll be back with more fascinating insight into the language of men's neckties. Thanks for listening. I never used to pay any attention to this stuff, and since I've got a wonderful co-host now that <laughs> that points these things out to me, uh, I was listening to this guy that does the reverse speech, and before uh, Trump got elected, they kept saying, oh, it's amazing, every one of his speech reversals are congruent with, you know, with the you know what he says you know forward this guy is he's not trying to pull anything over on us and now this past week uh they were uh, talking about how, every, how everything was just completely different than uh, you know in reverse than what he was saying forward and it's like he's all messed up and I, I just thought of you with the diagonals and saying it's like the tv screen when they used to throw up those uh yeah that's what those stripes are they um they keep you kind of They have your eye going up and down it, just like on those old TV screens with a static. Um, But the blue, the blue of that um, presentation during his uh, congressional talk was pretty, pretty hardcore. And um, you couldn't miss it. He was literally framed by blue, maybe, maybe literally and figuratively. Yeah, I did notice that, you know, it, it was what Ryan and the uh, uh, the vice president and and yeah, they had. But I didn't you know, I noticed that they were both light blue, but they were different shades of light blue. And I never mm-hmm. associated with with the Israeli flag. So is there any significance to which one had the one that was the same shade as uh, the flag? Do you want to get in on this, Jim or James? Excuse me. I didn't see the tie. So, or I can't remember the tie, so I, I can't comment uh, as to its relationship to the Israeli flag. But we'll get into Israel here. Okay. Okay. Look. Cool. That's a nice segue. I am really <laughs> sorry that I just burst out, and I don't even know where that came from. I wasn't even thinking. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue on. Yeah, go right into it. I want to hear. Okay. Well, back to March the 15th. We're talking about the government potential government shutdown because of the. Uh, debt ceiling limit, which falls on March the 15th, and the FOMC meeting on March the 15th, and Trump opponents beginning a uh, massive mail-in deluge on March the 15th, which will shortly thereafter be apparently followed by rioting and marches. And there's uh, also an important anniversary that I spotted on March the 15th. It's going to be exactly to the day, the 100th anniversary of the abdication of the Tsar of Russia. And if you want to know why that's significant, the Rothschilds, who are really at the center of the deep state for a long, long time, for a couple of centuries, their greatest enemy was the Tsar of Russia. And uh, as the story goes, they originally wanted to get a world government going at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, which was they were trying to work out the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars and the debts that had been accrued. Well, the Tsar of Russia didn't have any debt to the Rothschilds, and he said, no, we're not going to have any kind of a world government. And they say that the Rothschilds swore vengeance on the Tsar at that time, and he always was their most hated enemy. Of course, they financed Japan during the 1904-1905 war, which they used as a distraction to start riots in Russia and try to get the Bolshevik revolution going. Then it failed. It didn't succeed until 1917. But he was their most hated enemy. And so when you think about um, Trump abdication and then you look at March 15th and these events and you think, okay, we've got the 100th anniversary 
of the abdication of the most hated enemy. I find that a significant date. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as yeah. a, as a tie into your last visit, James, you know, I think I said we're going to get in trouble here, or, or you said I was going to get you in trouble because I, I said you seem to have kind of like a, uh, uh, you know, like an affection for the. Uh, I, that's not the right word. I'm sorry, but affinity, uh, affinity, yeah, for you know the the monarchs and the noble class and everything, and that all seemed to disappear with the abdication of the uh, of the czar, and then all, you know all of the wealth families with you know the exception of you know uh the british right now but uh they all just kind of disappeared and so we're now even you know they keep claiming that we have democracy and then you made a really good case for how if you think you have de- democracy if you get control of the media and the money supply well then you can get people to do whatever you want to do that you want them to do oh well that's exactly the case and the reason the monarchs had to go from the rothschild point of view is that uh unless they were fortunate enough to intermarry with a royal family, they couldn't get rid of monarchs. You know, monarchs uh, would be the head of a country, and uh, as long as the monarchs were there, they couldn't guarantee total control of the country unless they made the monarchs subservient to them. So what do you do? You overthrow the monarch through some kind of revolution. And so it's not a coincidence that in 1917 saw the end of the czars, and 1911 saw the end of the emperor of China, and all those kings of France, the king of uh, Belgium, the king of Italy, uh, all those kings of uh, Europe are gone now, but they used to be ruled by monarchs, but the New World Order wanted them swept away. You put into democracy, a monarchy is inherently unifying uh, because people rally upon the man or, or woman they consider the, the father or mother of their country. But democracy is inherently divisive. It divides a country into different parties and divide and conquer, right? So that's always been part of their strategy. And uh, here's the King George III. If you investigate King George III, uh, there's only been one British king since him who was not a Freemason. He was not a Freemason. He was a very godly man, um, a very good Christian. And um, uh, you can read my article called The Secrets Buried at Lexington Green, which is all about how the Battle of Lexington was actually a Freemasonic plot to entrap the British into firing the uh, first shot of the revolution. Actually, they didn't. The first 10 shots were fired by uh, Freemasons off to the side of the road in Lexington. I grew up in Lexington, Mass. I walk past that battle green every day, so it's always had a special place of interest for me. But I'm probably repeating. Can I ask a question? How did you find out that the, the people that shot at Lexington were Freemasons? Well, figure out, figure it out. I mean, everybody on Paul Revere's ride, uh, Paul Revere was sent on his ride by Dr. Charles Warren, uh, as along with another writer named... Uh, William Dawes, and they went out to Lexington to a house which conveniently was 200 feet behind that battle green. And uh, oh, that's met, pretty convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Hancock and every member of that ride, uh, including Dr. Charles Warren, was head of the uh, um, St. Andrew's Lodge, which met at the Green Dragon Tavern in, in, in Boston. And William Dawes and Paul Revere and John Hancock were all members of that lodge, and that's something you don't read in your history books, but that was a Freemasonic mm-hmm. plot. And that's, by the way, why the northern jurisdiction of Freemasonry has its headquarters in the little town of Lexington, because they know that they were the ones who put that whole thing together. 
And, but and read you, my article. It's got the, all the details. It's a long article. And, okay. and you also uh, went into how, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the Masons are kind of disappearing now, but they don't really need them anymore because, you know, you said don't uh, don't think that all Masons are bad. You've got your average, you know, porch right. Mason that, you know, Absolutely. These, yeah. but now all of mm-hmm. that, what used to be handled by the inner core of the Masons is now being handled by the CIA and all of these, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. secret agencies. So, yeah, go into that some. You have uh, government secret agencies now, whereas before they had to rely on these uh, the non-governmental secrecy of the Freemasons. And so, you know, you had uh, FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a 32nd degree Mason and Harry Truman was 33rd degree. But they don't really need the Masons that much anymore. So they've lost some of their uh, official uh, secret uh, behind the scenes uh, work because they now have the uh, NSA and the CIA, et cetera, to, uh, to do that kind of thing. Um, but uh, to get back to March the fifth, oh, back to March fifteenth. But first, to see if there's any follow-up you want to ask about that. Well, yeah. Now all the Masons do is ride around in the little clown, clown cars uh, during parades. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's lots of good Freemasons. Uh, many of them. I've been on radio shows hosted by Freemasons, and my maternal grandfather was a Freemason, and. and uh, you know, the, the, the most of your low-level Blue Lodge Freemasons know nothing about the Luciferian agenda that's at the very, very top of what they call them, illuminated Masons. But uh, Oh, the, great. The, it's, we've got like, what, 10 minutes left of the show, and you're talking about this. This sounds fantastic. I want to know about that. Uh, well, that's all right. I think we had to wrap up March the 15th. That's okay. A, a couple other things. If we've only got 10 minutes, March the 15th is also the Ides of March, yes. which is the day Julius Caesar was assassinated. And so, again, if you're putting together the downfall of Caesar and the downfall of Tsar, uh, both happening the same day, then you can see how the down, downfall of Trump might be time to coincide with that, even if it's only the beginning of his downfall. There's another thing, and it was just the putting of all these things together that got my attention. Now, last year, I was contacted on my website by an individual who has a very long association with affairs in Iran. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, family members who go back to the Mossadegh regime, which preceded, uh, which was knocked out by the CIA and even before the Shahs. I mean, this guy goes way back and he showed me bona fides PDFs and he was who he said he was. And he doesn't live in Iran anymore. But what he told me was that and he told me this last year before there's any talk about March 15. He said that on the Ides of March, there's going to be a coup in Iran. And it got my attention a little bit. But there's only one of like 100 things he was telling me. Um, but he said there will be a coup in Iran on March the 15th. Uh, and he told me this last year and he said, there are people in the Iranian government that will be involved with it. And there's several things that to chime in with this. Number one, uh, the holiday, uh, the weekend before March the 15th this year is going to be Purim, which is the Jewish festival when they celebrate escaping their enemies and slaughtering their enemies in ancient Persia, which we now call Iran. And uh, also coups are credible, given that we just saw one in Turkey when the Turkish government started getting a little too warm to Russia. And uh, also, uh, although many people in alternative media view Iran sort of the opposite way the main deep state does, it's a lot of people alt media view Iran as very heroic and they had a heroic uh, revolution against the Shah. I've known for a long time that the West backed that revolution against the Shah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Henry Kissinger actually initiated that. And there were a lot of reasons, one of which was he wanted to nationalize oil interest in Iran, which is the reason the CIA knocked out Mossadegh before him. 
but there was right. actually a, an interview he gave with Mike Wallace, and you'll see it embedded on my post. Uh, by the way, the name of that post, which is the, just go to my website, jamesperloff.com, and click on blog, but it's the post name is From Washington to the Middle East, Should we the World Brace for March 15th. Um, but uh, the West backed that uh, revolution against the Shah, and what really did him in was an interview he gave with Mike Wallace, where he talked about the power of the Jewish lobby, even controlling our president, and that apparently was the last straw for him. But there were a lot of other things. He was he was against the drug trade, and uh, he helped uh, Egypt during the 1973 Yom Kippur War against Israel, and they'd had enough of him, and they decided he had to go, and so they turned him into uh, the bad guy du jour um, and got rid of him. Uh, but uh, also, uh, there have been people uh, like Brendan O'Connell, who's a an big anti-Zionist, went to uh, Iran recently. He had two posts on Henry Mackow's website where he was surprised at the warm and cold reception he got in Iran. And this ties into what this guy was telling me, that he said that there are people in the Iranian government who are actually, that there are many people in Iran who are true believers in their revolution, but there are also many people in the Iranian government who are complicit with the West secretly, even have some dual citizenship in the West and he said that's one reason why uh, there was this easy deal between the Obama administration and Iran, that there's a lot of money going back and forth between the two sides. But that was one more thing. Uh, if we did have a coup in Iran on March the 15th, which is the last obstacle to the Israeli goal of, of uh, greater Israel. And I know, uh, Rachel, you probably want me to elaborate what that means. Yeah, if you but, could just. Um, yeah, we've got a few minutes, but go ahead. Um, but. Um, uh, yeah, Greater Israel is uh, a plan that goes back to the Zionist Congresses begun in 1897 with the Rothschild backing hosted by Theodore Herzl. That's what Christian Zionism is all about. You know, we all know about world government, but every government's got a capital and they want the capital of their world government to be Jerusalem. They want it to be uh, this Greater Israel that the Rothschilds envisioned. And you can even uh, go to uh, remarks made by David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, predicting that Israel would be the future capital, the future center of world government. That's long been the plan. And um, so uh, Greater Israel, and the best article I can recommend on this, it's a very detailed article on global research, which does a lot of good work. Yeah, they're Just good. Google I like them. Global research and Greater Israel, you'll find an extensive um, posting there, not only about Herzl and the Zionist Congresses, but how modern Israeli policymakers have had this plan to to balkanize, to divide up all the surrounding countries, you know, Jordan, Syria, Libya, Iraq. That's what our wars have been about, destabilizing all their neighbors. And Iran's apparently next on the hit list. And you know all about General Wesley Clark's uh, remarks about how in the Pentagon in 2001, they, there was already a plan to take out seven countries. That included Iran. They're on the hit list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But March the 15th, this guy told me there will be a coup. Now, I just want to stress, I have no way of vouching that this will happen. But when I looked at this and I said, look at all these other things happening on March the 15th, wouldn't it be convenient if we were distracted at home by Soros riots and a government shutdown while there's a lot of activity in the Middle East, maybe a coup in Iran, and in the meantime, Israel invades Syria to resurrect the failed ISIS operation and Americans aren't paying attention because you know how they like to distract you from events. Oh, yeah, like, sure, like they sure. vote on the TPP. So they have the Orlando shooting, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. They get Americans distracted with something domestic and not notice what's taking place in the Middle East as this uh, greater Israel plan fulfills. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, it's true. They don't they it seems like we've had a like a lull in these mass shootings. 
during mm-hmm. the during the election, they were just going nuts with it. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, oh, now everything's kind of okay. So we're ready for another wave, I think. I hope not. But uh, yeah, they do use that a lot. And you know, there could be something on March 15th that we, that's not on the calendar. You know, it could be uh, one of those false flag gladio type shootings. It could be a bomb going off or an assassination. And maybe they would strive to blame this on Iran. And one of the things about Trump that bothers me is not only his Zionist connections, but his hostility towards Iran. You know, the very day of his inauguration, he said he was going to build a missile shield against Iran, which makes no sense because they don't have any nuclear weapons and they don't have any ballistic missiles that can reach us. So why do we need a missile shield against Iran? And immediately when he said that, it conjured up images for me of George Bush talking about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which didn't exist. We wound mm-hmm. up going to war, costing right. trillions of dollars and over half a million lives. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting from your post is, the, you know, the the tie in how Trump is the only you know, president that's ever endorsed, uh, you know, uh, Bibi Netanyahu and actually did a, uh, a campaign ad for him. And I thought that was yeah. really pretty interesting. So, uh Trump has done a lot of positive things. You know, he's uh, axed the TPP and he's reversed the transgender policies of Obama. And he's even talked to Robert F. Kennedy about being on a vaccine task force. I love this. Some of the stuff he's doing, but he does have tremendous, a tremendous number of Zionist connections from Netanyahu to Jared Kushner, who's extremely pro-Zionist. And, you know, um, his uh, daughter, Ivanka, converted to Judaism to marry into the billionaire Kushner family. And um, uh, he's got a, a very hardline pro-occupation guy. David Friedman is our ambassador to Israel. And he's got numerous Zionists in his administration. And he said he'll move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is part of the Rothschild plan to build this third temple in Jerusalem. Um, so this and, and it's inauguration day, you know. His speech was immediately followed by an invocation, first ever given on an inauguration day by an Orthodox rabbi who spoke about... Um, uh, Zion and Jerusalem. So uh, a lot of Zionist hints coming from the president. And, I, and of course, you mentioned the the blue colors indicating mm-hmm. symbolizing uh, Israel. Yeah, um, there's, yeah, the, definitely. The, the color oh, definitely. Schemes, uh, okay, we're coming up on the two minute warning. So, uh, James, you know, you have to plug your books and uh, where they can get them. And uh, we have to plug Shadow Citizen merchandise. So get your coffee cups and uh, T-shirts over at Shadow Citizen online. But uh, but yeah, James, where can they get your material? Do you, uh, I know uh, sh- no, it wasn't Shadow Ring. I'm sorry. I'm blanking on the name of yes. the film. That yeah. You- yeah, you're right. Shadow Ring is a movie we did with Kevin Sorbo as narrator. Uh, Tree Mind Films, that's a documentary that's uh, sort of a primer on the New World Order, Council on Foreign Relations, Federal Reserve, etc. The Shadows of Power is a book I wrote 30 years ago that's still a bestseller about the Council on Foreign Relations. My latest book is Truth is a Lonely Warrior, and um, I have uh, other books as well. But you go to my website, jamesperloff.com, for my latest blog post and information on how to get the books, all of which are available on Amazon. All right, and uh, let's see. Next week is, in one week, we have the Ides of March, and uh, Rachel, our guest, is Charles Ortel, and I know very little about him. Do you know anything? Uh... Oh, my gosh. He is an investigative reporter, and he ended up doing, he spent a lot of years now investigating the Clinton Global Initiative, and he says that what he's found basically makes them the largest non-prosecuted um is a criminal offense with their money. You know, he said it was like it's it's nonprofit gate on steroids. It's really ridiculous how much 
they've gotten away with. And he's in the newspaper. He's a, I forget what newspaper he's, I'll know next week for sure, his whole bio. But um, he's going to be talking to us about that. And uh, it sounds like the, the the Clinton Global Initiative is kind of on its way out. So uh, they've yeah, kind they of disbanded all, it. Broke it down. So. And that's exactly when the Obama Foundation opened up. Well, anyway, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been Shadow Citizen. And uh, Rachel and I appreciate you being here. And we'll see you all next week. So thanks again. And thank you, James Perloff. An excellent interview. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, James Perloff. Welcome to Shadow Citizen with Rachel McIntosh and Robo Cell.